One thing a queer or trans person will say is they grew up in an environment where they were told very clearly about how much of an abomination, a sin. But when it came to sexual predators and when it came to other things, yeah. it was yeah. all of a sudden mums the word. Brothers and sisters, my name is Kirk Franklin, and I come to give you good words. Let's go. Good words, family. Today's guest is an award-winning actress, singer, and human rights advocate, most known as Candy Ferocity on the groundbreaking FX series Pose. Now the first openly transgender woman to lead a Broadway show as Roxy Hart in the long-running musical Chicago. I've always said to you, Good Words family, that I want this podcast to be a podcast where every human being on this planet feels welcome to have a conversation. I want to be a listener. I want to be a servant. I want to be one that offers love and conversation to anybody who wants to talk with me. Is there a person that Jesus would ever turn away from the table? No. Then we have to have a conversation with each other. And today, I'm honored to have an award-winning thespian uh, activist. I mean, just a killer personality that has so much talent, so much ability, and so much to say and so much to offer that we are humbled to have this opportunity. Please welcome the wonderful Angelica Ross. What you mean? I don't know. Listen, I grew up in Kojic, Church of God in Christ. Um, Greater Grace Temple, Church of God in Christ. Absolutely. (laughs) And Racine, Wisconsin. And I grew up in the church choir. I grew up listening to your music. I grew up performing your music. One of my favorite songs that starts off with, it go, uh, I go like, (laughs) it's like one of them songs where it starts off crying. That's off the God's Property album. You're right. It's the- yes, that was a jam. Do, do you know how funny that is that you just did? But we're going to be laughing about that later. I'm going to call everybody that was on that album. Yeah. Because in the 90s, you really thought that that was deep and super spiritual to have a song strung like that. But now when you get older, you're like, why did I have them yelling and crying and screaming like that on that song? Listen, <laughs> it was wonderful. Like that album oh, did wow. so much for me. Honestly, Kirk, I was just like, wait, when my people called me, they said, uh, Kirk Franklin wants to have you as a, invite you as a guest on the podcast. I said, who? I was like, wait, Kirk why? Franklin? Because honestly, the church space mm-hmm has been quite interesting, um, not only in my own experience, but obviously for a lot of queer and trans Black people especially. Mm. Um, It has been a non-welcoming space or at the best, a tolerated space. Sometimes we're tolerated or just as long as you don't speak out, whether we got gay folks as, as the organ player or in the choir, we've had this message that's been very clear to so many of us that you know, the space is just not welcoming. And the best that we get is folks saying, hate the sin, not the sinner. But I've been a part of a conversation with folks that's been 
moving beyond the toleration of things and to understand the divinity in every person, in every path. That's why I was like, of course I'll have this conversation because like, if he's willing to have this conversation, I'm definitely willing to have a conversation. And I feel like both of our audiences will be blessed from it. Wow. Wow. What made you feel comfortable with me? Was there something about me that you read or saw or what gave you the comfort of feeling like this would be a safe space? Well, I'll tell you this. For starters, I have a certain ability um, and I, I define that like with responsibility as the <laughs> ability to respond. So for me, I know that whether or not this was going to be a safe space or not, that I would have the ability to respond um, to the conversation that would come up. So that was, first and foremost, I was kind of being obedient to the call of the situation and saying, you know what, I am the right person to be able to respond in this conversation. But secondly, I feel like from the first time that I have been a fan of your music and just have known of you, You've always been slightly radical in the church space when it comes to music, when it comes to talking about your own struggles. So I Mm -hmm. felt as if this would be a conversation of two people who can just actually hear each other. Wow. 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 And I want you to know that I'm very humbled and I'm very grateful that with whatever traumatic history that you've had, that you felt uh, intrinsically that it would be a a safe human space for you and for us to be able to have conversation. And I just want to tell you, thank you. And I mean that sincerely. Yes. Thank you for the uh, invite. And thank you for reminding me of that horrible introduction to that song. People just crying. (laughs) Let me tell you something. You blessed me with that. You (laughs) you took me back with that. When you sang in the choir and you heard this song, what city was it? So I grew up in Racine, Wisconsin. And you know, it was system. a Kojic church in Racine. Wisconsin. Oh my God, you kidding me? Not only was it a Kojic, Kojic church, but if you didn't go to that church for one thing, you definitely went for the choir. I mean, really? you know, the word was the word and it was great, but the choir was well known. And Sister Deborah Brown that uh, that led our choir, to be honest with you, like, I have, I have ex- thankfully experienced a lot of healing because... My experience in the church is very interesting, but like Sister Brown, who was the director of our choir and a musical director, it's just sometimes people see you. And even though we're struggling around how I'm manifesting, how my energy was starting to manifest in the church, being more feminine than uh, than what I was being allowed to be, she encouraged me musically. Um to sing those solos and the, we have an MB selection and I would, you know, sing the solos <laughs> and, you know, we would have to hear our parts uh, just like this fine tuning our ear. But what I learned in the church musically has just never left me. And as I returned to the music space, you know, when I started out, I was, I was playing piano by ear from the fourth grade. Then I started writing gospel music. I had a gospel album when I was 16 or whatnot. And I had a group. We were like a singing gospel group or whatnot. And it was a kind of a traumatic exit for me because I came from this place of being connected to the source. Like when I sang, when I opened my mouth, I knew where that gift was coming from. And I knew 
what I was tapping into. And yet at the same time being told that I'm an abomination or I'm a sin or that I'm possessed by some demon because of my femininity or because of how my identity was starting to come up. But it was the music. It was a seed that was planted in me that regardless of sort of my spiritual journey and where I've, I've ended up, um, I've always been able to connect to that thing. And when it comes to gospel music, I feel like that's something that's a gift to our people. Um, the call and response and slavery and the times before then and the ways that we communicated, mm. I feel like it's this essence of who we are as a people that has been, I wouldn't say like fully like co-opted, but I would just say that like, it's a space in which uh, religion has claimed dominion over something that our people have in our blood. So something that I mm. felt like almost kicked out of for quite a while. Um until eventually I found my own way back to the music. What do you listen to now when it comes to gospel music? I listen to the old stuff. So like John P. Keyes. Why come you don't listen to no new stuff? I don't know if it's just not hit me. To be honest with you, gospel music has become a kind of nostalgic for me, I think, in the sense mm. that when I listen to Yolanda Adams and I listen to the live experience or I listen to your albums or Smokey Norville and, you know, all of the things mm. that I grew up with, it takes me back to a place musically. Um, and it's a way that I'm able to enjoy the gifts of music without bringing up the trauma that I experienced around that space. Um, I'm healed. Like I'm not in this place of holding uh, any grudges against God, against the church against any of that, I just realized that I've tapped in a different way. And for me, like mm. I'm a Buddhist and I, I practice Buddhism and I study Buddhism and it has brought me to an understanding to tap into the greater, whatever you would call God or you would call a different thing. I just have stopped arguing with people over the language. And sometimes there are social conditions that are still tainting religious practices from the times when, you know, mm. my mom could not wear skirts in the church or wear lipstick in the church and things like that to me going to pride celebrations uh, and always knowing that, like clockwork that there's going to be a religious group there telling me that God hates fags and, you know, all these different things. So it's, I think Man, it's a it just hurt me as soon as you said that word. It was like, yeah, yeah. My chest I mean, and, and I say it because I reclaim all the negativity that has been said against me. Um, I've been called all the names. I've been called a fag. I've been called a tranny. I've been called a man. I've been called a he, she. I've been called an abomination, possessed the devil. I've been called everything but a child of God. And I'm so sorry about that. But, you know, for me, I want healing for my people on all sides of this equation healing for the mothers and fathers who feel conflicted because all that they followed or known, at least with God's word, um, puts them in adversity with their own children who may identify as queer or trans. But what I hope people can hopefully eventually discover, I have friends who still consider themselves Christian, but also in somewhere in their mind are like holding on to and understanding that they're still sinful in their essence or that I'll have to answer for this. It's just this weird space and my heart breaks for people who don't have a 
for me, a correct understanding of how valuable they are. What I have been trying to learn how to do, and I can tell you, I am not excellent at it. I am still in the path of trying is because I want so many people to have the space where as a Christian, you do not have to agree with my Christian beliefs and live in this country for me to be able to see you as human. And so I'm trying to figure out, Angelica, how do I transfer that type of ideology that we have to live on the same planet for a period of time and we all are never going to agree on every aspect of our human existence. But if we can find a place to honor the humanity in each other while giving each other room to have our differences, how do you think that we can get to that point? Um, it's because I agree with you. I have gay friends that have different ideas of their Christian faith. And I know I'm, I'm saying this to you and you probably know this as well, that they may not see um, their faith any different than how the Bible says. Some of them are celibate. Right. Some of them yes. execute certain ways. As long as love is the answer and love is the driving intent, how do we give humans the room to be able to have their different views, but to still lead with love? Well, you know, I think it's pretty simple, but it's it's proving to be very difficult for our society, especially when it comes, in my experience, um, when I'm fellowshipping or engaging with people who consider themselves Christian, it's so odd to me how many people speak on behalf of God, how many people mm. honestly disrespect mm. God. I once heard Eckhart Tolle talk about it and say, um, you know, it's this whole essence of if God is truly in everybody, then when God is speaking, you have to have this place of not being disrespectful to what is being presented to you. For instance, one of the things that has been so healing for me in my Buddhist practice is when I would go to our Buddhist center and I would run into different black people. The energy, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it because the black people I ran into seemed so different. And I'm just telling you this from my experience, seems so different than the times when I would walk into different Christian spaces or church spaces. There was freedom written all over their face. I saw black women with gray locks or short hair that weren't playing into the same patriarchal notions that like, kind of buddy-buddy with church politics of how my mom and other women carried themselves. I was nervous at first when I would come out sometimes and tell people that I was trans within that community. But what I realized soon after was every time that I came out, the response that people had, even if it wasn't on a side where they truly understood what trans was or anything like that, their first kickback was, whoa, you must have a very blessed life. And the reason why is because a lot of times when we talk in our community about challenges, these big challenges that we're going through, we would say congratulations. And you'd be like, wait a second, congrats. What do you mean congratulations? I just lost my house. I just lost my job. And they're like, congratulations. Because we understand the human condition and what it means to have a human revolution spiritually. And what that means is that whatever challenges that you're going through, 
the greater the challenge within correlation to the challenge is a benefit on the other side of figuring Mm. out that Mm -hmm. challenge. Understanding that every single person that comes to this planet is yet another example of how God moves. And so whether that is someone with autism, with a disability, someone who is trans or LGBTQ, there are so many ways in which we can look to one another and see how God evolves and see how I am co-creating my life with a divine power that is having a ripple effect. And so how we get to this place of respecting every human being and whether you believe what I believe, because the reality is you don't need to believe what I believe because you might not fully understand the specific path that has been laid out for me. Mm. But to fully bring an energy of understanding that God is not done yet, that from point A to point, you have no idea. And to prophesize, to try to take the rip the pin out of someone else's hand and who is the author of their own story and to tell them, no, this is the way your life is supposed to be ran is really disrespectful to God because God's got the pen. <laughs> your pen is not <laughs> more powerful than God's. But to sit here and claim that you know how the beginning, middle, and end of how my life is supposed to go is the first place where you didn't messed up and really are stepping in God's way. Like live what you believe, know what you believe, but apply that to yourself. Cause the moment that's what someone else is doing is rattling your cage and rattling your faith is the moment you need to relook at your foundation. And see with all this this understanding and just this wealth that you come from is I just want to know how was that for you when you were younger and when you were growing up, like when you were growing up, what did you imagine you would be? Like what were your dreams when you were young? It's very interesting. So when I was young, I thought definitely thought I was going to do music and acting. And that was it. Like I, I knew it from a very young age. Really? But also there was this weird calling on my life. And it was very interesting because from a child, I love Bible study. And a lot of times I skipped lunch to have Bible study. It was just the nerdiest thing. Yeah. And like, (laughs) I felt this immense calling on my life um, and still do. And wow. It has been very interesting to me because I feel like I've been this voice who has come up in an unlikely space where I was brought up in the church and I was brought up to know and to learn a certain essence and it has served me well. Um, But it was super confusing for me because all of a sudden I was in an environment that seemed to want to cast me out as a demon, pray me away. So it was very conflicting for me to try to figure out both feel God's essence in me, but also deal with the conflicting messages coming from the church about who I am and what was possible for my life. So I know a lot of people, um, I used to do what they call uh, drag shows and things like that coming up. And I worked in Chicago and I would come out And I would see so many homeless 
black and brown youth uh, mm. on the streets. And some of them we call church sissies. What does that mean? Oh, I, uh, let me tell you, the church sissies, it's, and it's, these are terms of endearment within our own community, but the church sissies were the ones who could yodel. I mean, they would be out on the streets singing their tails off because they had no other place to go because their homes told them not in my house and because their churches were unwelcoming for them to be their, their flamboyant selves. So we would see that essence hadn't left them. How did you know that they were from the church? What was it about them that specifically you knew that they were from the, the culture of church? We found each other. It's from all the isms. The okay, devil is, okay. the devil is a it. lie. Got it. Um, got it. Got you it. Know, got doing it. Doing a run out of nowhere. What was so mm-hmm. amazing is uh, some back in the day, and this still happens, but you have your white drag and, you know, clubs, and then you have your black ones. And in the black ones, it's some queens that only do gospel music. And we would go in that club. And some days we would have church in that club Mm. and the spirit would be moving through that building because Miss Ma'am is uh, her drag number. She's doing Yolanda Adams and has us all in the midst of it all. And we are just all going through it in the building. When I just think about the space, it hurts my heart a little bit. It it both smile and enjoy it. But I also Mm. know that we created that space because we had to for mm. us to be able to fully praise the Lord and with our flamboyant selves, we had to create a different space for that. We had to have our own space because even when you talk about white LGBTQ experiences, it's completely different. That's what I wanted to ask you about. That, than that, black that experiences. Is exactly of, yes. Is I want you to tell me and explain to me, why do you think that race still played a part in this marginalized community that you would think automatically would have more unity? So (laughs) the reality is the short answer is anti-Blackness and racism affects all of us, regardless of if you're gay or straight. That's amazing, isn't it? It's quite something to experience, I will say. That race trumps Everything. Yes. I've done a lot of social justice and racial justice training to understand. uh, Dr. Jamie Washington always told me, he was like, you know, is race the most important factor of the conversation? No, but it is always a factor. One thing I will say is that when, especially when it comes to being trans, one of the big stark differences between white trans people and black and brown trans people is when you think about these Caitlyn Jenners of the world and that, you know, people brought this conversation then around trans that was so privileged and so detached away from what the everyday, especially black and brown trans person was experiencing. So you have white trans people who say, Angelica, you got to understand, see, I couldn't transition, you see, because I would have lost my Olympic deals. I would have lost my wife and my kids. I would have lost my job. And what you would hear so many times from white folks is about all of these privileges that they would lose Mm -hmm. if they chose Mm -hmm. themselves, if they chose to prioritize their own experience. But what I hear from black and brown trans folks, we're transitioning out of out of diapers because Mm -hmm. ain't no inheritance. We already 
as the poor people, as yeah. the this, as the that. Yes. I have nothing to lose and everything to gain by choosing myself. And so what you see is young black, queer and black and brown trans people who don't even have the world tools yet who are already mm -hmm. now going out and choosing themselves without family support, without education. I always tell people, I know what my father and my mother were afraid of. My father would always tell me, you being black in this world, you already got one strike against mm -hmm. you and then you got a strike against you for this. And now you want to go be LGBTQ or trans or gay. That's another strike against you. It's going to be hard for you to make it in this world that is hard on people with one layer of uh, marginalized identity, let alone two or three. So there's been this fear of my child is not going to have a good life. No, who's going to love my child? The world's going to be violent towards my child and end up being the first examples of that violence. With that, we're going to take a quick break. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. What if you could become stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold and breathe? You get into ice water, and instead of like freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin Bieber love it. I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body. But there's also a dark side. How many people have died doing the Wim Hof Method? We can override even death. Listen on the podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. And we're back. Can you even maybe give us, even if you feel comfortable, share with us how your relationship is with your father? Well, I have 
two fathers. I have my father that raised me from birth that was with my mother. And I have my birth father. And they both love me like so fiercely and always have, even through their misunderstandings. Mm. My hardest kind of relationship was with my mother. My father, even when he didn't understand, he stood up for me. How did you walk them through? To be honest, I walked them through a difficult conversation because I hadn't yet told them what my life was. They So I was starting to be on TV. Certain things were starting to happen in my career. Congratulations, too. Thank we, you so we, much. We're going to talk about how you've been killing it in a minute because... Let me tell you something. You over here murdering. I, I mean, it's just. I appreciate <laughs> it's it. It's blood all on my paper. Listen. But, I, but thank you for sharing with us. Yes. No, I, I worked really hard. And, you know, there got to be a time when I realized that my parents wanted to be back into my life. And all I wanted was to have my parents in my life. You know, I spent wow. 10 years without my family because of us not talking and speaking. As they were starting to come back, I said, well, listen. I can't have a relationship with you and act like everything's okay until I tell you what it costs me in your absence, what mm. I had to do mm. in order to survive. And that's when I told them about the sex work. And thankfully, not being wrapped up in drugs, things that like could have really ruin my life, but like letting them know that like I had to eat, I had to take care of myself in a world that you were right, that was going to be violent towards me, that was going to not want to give me a job and do all of these things. So I don't want you to turn away from understanding that I've been held at knife point in cars to know that because you pushed me out and said, not in your house, I had to navigate the streets. So once I walked them through that, they apologized to me. You know, they wholeheartedly apologized to me. And Beautiful for them. I did not know. And, I, and if we knew better, we would have done better. I'm grateful for the grace and the second chances that we've had to sort of heal. I've always been one about living and speaking in the truth, but not hiding or run away from things. You know, for me, to be in a place where I have publicly admitted to being an escort, being doing sex work, selling my body, um, it was a place of so much shame and a place of thinking, okay, so this is where my station in society belongs. Wow. As a trans woman, I belong as some man's toy or this is a life you chose. You know, I had such a misunderstanding of it. And I am so grateful. The nonprofit that I run now, Transsex Social Enterprises, was born out of my experience of being trafficked into sex work and told, what else are you going to do? When you let them know you're trans, when you show your ID, they're going to fire you. What else are you going to do? Where we are being told the only value we have is selling our bodies. It was the most profound blessing that I could have experienced because I learned a valuable lesson about value that it goes beyond 
physical prostitution, of understanding how people put themselves in places where they are prostituting themselves out and lying to themselves about the exchange. And so to have this very clear understanding of saying to myself, moment by moment, you're worth more than this. You deserve more than this. And then creating a tech space that was all about, instead of me posing on these websites, I was running the websites. And then got to a place where I decided, you know what? I actually don't want to do adult content and doing other, you know, designing graphic design flyers for Ludacris and Cedric the Entertainer. They never even knew I was trans because of being able Mm. to work remotely. What I got to experience was grace. I was able to go from that point A of not knowing what else to do. All I had was my body to sell. And then having the grace to figure it out step by step and pull myself out of a situation where there was no shame. What do I have to be shamed about? When the playing field was set up the way it was for me, or more like I'm proud of how I've been able to navigate and survive these circumstances when I've been given the least to be able to survive. You know, my uh, sister, who was incarcerated for over 10 years, I was was uh, adopted and my sister didn't get that privilege. When she got out of prison, she was a sex worker for a minute. I didn't know. I don't think that she defined what she was doing as mm-hmm, sex mm-hmm. work. I mean, she was trying to take care of her drug addiction and just listening to you made me relive, you know, just that moment in my life of uh, how painful that had to be for her mm-hmm. and how painful that had to be for you, how painful that had to be for your family. When you don't understand, you are doing the best you can with what you have and then there are people around you that you love that even get hurt. Mm-hmm. And And it's so important to hear the words, I'm sorry. It's such a healing. And I didn't know, I'm sorry. And to be able to, you know, hug your children and just to let them know that I'm sorry for the pain that I brought into your life. I know what that would feel like if my parents would have ever done that to me. (laughs) I know what that would feel like to my sister if our biological mother was still living. And the courage that you have to be a open book about nights that I knew were painful. Yeah. To hear you say it, it's a whole nother thing to live it at three o'clock in the morning where you were at one night on a Wednesday or Saturday mm-hmm. morning. And like you said, you've, you've done it a myriad of times. And so you've had to have this courage. <laughs> yeah. A multiplicity of times. I know if there's anyone else, Angelica, I need for you to know that it pulled me and that it pulled on my heart. I am deeply moved by your courage. Thank you. If you don't mind me asking, what did you need from your mother? That's a good question. I think that many times before any queer trans kid knows who they are, people around us, they start clocking certain behavior in us. And one of the first things they feel is fear. All I needed from her to do was to see me and not be afraid and to love me unconditionally 
as a child is a child is a child. Yeah. Even when it comes to yeah. queer and trans conversations, there are so many ways of talking about these things that are age appropriate. I don't care if I was trans or not. No, ain't no, keep that door open. Ain't no boys sleeping, you know, ain't whatever the rules are for any, you know, adolescent kid in general, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that same sort of guidance could apply. What I really needed from her, I think I'm more of a sore spot for so many years is I needed her to know the God that she says that she serves. Instead of listening to charismatic spinoffs of what preachers say about certain things in the Bible, to truly go back to the essence of God, instead of living in this like Old Testament sort of archetypal God that burned everything down, you know, but of being in this space where she could see God moving through me and through my life, but you have your own role to play in this story. Going from a place of not understanding and rejecting me to a place of embracing and loving me unconditionally. How is the rest of the world going to learn and move on if you don't share your testimony? I am fortunate enough to have her in a space where she is able to see what she calls God, what I might call something else, moving through my life and everything that I do and know that I'm on purpose, that know that she has done a great job in raising me and that she didn't fail, that she didn't go, where did I go wrong? Why did you turn out this way? And understanding that I turned out the way that I was meant to and supposed to. How do LGBTQIA plus children and parents that may just grow up with certain religious beliefs, whatever those religious beliefs are, or just parents and they just have their own ideals, you know, just cisgender men and women, right? Absolutely. They, they just have their own social constructs or they have their religious constructs. How does the language of love look to a child while that parent is still either coming to grips or battling what they believe or what they know to believe and their sense of faith and how they execute both. Like, what is the language of love to a child? I think the language of love is, again, uh, seeing your children. I think Maya Angelou talked about it once in a conversation with Oprah as well. It's like when a child walks into a room, do your eyes light up? Uh, are you happy to see them or are they met with criticism? Are they met with some religious ruler um, that is there to strike down who they are? The language of love, I believe, looks like being able to see your children and delight in their presence. Little boys that are playing with dolls or dresses or feminine things, if that's what they are picking up, learning how to without judgment, delight in your child's presence. What I think is too often happening in our churches is that we're not talking about the things we should be talking about. But when it comes to queer and trans and LGBTQ kids, there's always a preoccupation with a conversation that is sexualized. It's very much sexualized about who these children are going to be. And these children don't even know anything about sex to begin with. And yet you have grown adults sexualizing children's experiences. And you then have 
women who are being violated by men in their families, in their churches, but we don't talk about that. And one thing a, a queer, a trans person will say is they grew up in an environment where they were told very clearly about how much of an abomination, a sin. But when it came to sexual predators and when it came to other things, yeah. it was yeah. all of a sudden mums the word. Yes, that that I have to echo that historically there is a great sense of um, of hypocrisy that has not allowed there to even be even an alternative conversation to some of the things that we're discussing because hypocrisy becomes the cloud. Yeah. Every other conversation becomes uh, just a conflict of interest because we never address the cloud. Yes. <laughs> so, and so I have to agree with you that, 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 that even my own experiences, Angelica, even in church, you know, as a cisgender male, I was able to sleep with all the girls in the choir and never got set down. Right. But the choir director right. was gay or the singer that was gay. There was always the Adam and Steve sermons. There was yeah. all the, the, these other sermons. And I did not get addressed at all. Me and other young cisgender males in church that were very promiscuous and very, um, you know, hypersexual. Yes. There was no conversation about us. And so that hypocrisy um, has added to a lot of the trauma and, and a lot of the pain for, for LGBTQIA plus individuals who live through that mm -hmm. and are continuing to live through that. You, I think I, the Bible sets people up to, in a way, unfortunately, it sets us all up into this space where people feel some sort of way when a, somebody comes out as gay or queer or trans or let alone just talking about a general cisgender woman who has not found a husband yet or hasn't had kids or whatever the deal is, is that we have allowed the Bible to set us up to a space of feeling like we are not fulfilling our role as a human being if we do not procreate, if we do not go forth and multiply. So now the woman who cannot biologically have children is now not uh, valuable in our society. Mm. A man who cannot go forth and procreate is not valuable. And instead of us learning that the essence of life is becoming who God intended you to be, fully blossoming, blooming as a person, not finding someone else and then coming together and doing this, but that we all learn how to become full and to not need this story of like, oh, I've got a husband and feeling this value out of husband and kids and this and all these things that become attachments that even when I'm a father or a mother, my children and what they do with their lives is an unnecessary reflection of me because, well, the God, the Bible said you bring a child up and uh, and bring a child up in the ways and they won't depart. You know, listen, my my stuff is uh, mm -hmm. very very rough because I'm fine. You're <laughs> fine. You're fine. My but, stuff is. Hold on, hold on, hold on. My stuff is too. So, okay, okay. You know, my, my, stuff my is understanding too. is a little rough, but just saying that, like, we're really messed up in this space of 
tying our value to our gender roles and not becoming full people as whatever the mix is supposed to be. You just see all these dynamics of a woman not having kids or getting married or having been kids out of wedlock. And there's all this conversation on her, on how she could be a better woman. But we're choosing some of these men who are in the church and who we think might be that great partner, but he's not held to the same accountability that the women in the church. There's this patriarchal tone within uh, Christianity. Really, I have to agree with that. Is yes. really holding yeah. us back. One thing I know for sure yeah. is that the moment that these spaces embrace queer and trans people and women uh, fully is the moment we will really see freedom. But we cannot go out here and, be, and get anywhere by oppressing our and own speaking people. Speaking of that, great point, great point. Do you feel like people see a division between the black community and the trans community? I think they do. And I think that Dave Chappelle is part of the reason they do. Even his joke about joking about my body, my private space as an impossible burger and saying, you know, that's not blood, that's beet juice. And trying to say, you know, it ain't the same. It's extremely offensive. It's divisive. It's like an okey doke divisiveness too. Like people don't even really sometimes see it. It's literally a man sitting here propping up talking points to divide women, cis women and trans people to have this, uh, this whole dialogue around who's real and who isn't. But Dave Chappelle and many other folks like that who are jesters and then bring into a space to try to simplify an idea even the friend that he talks about that is trans is a white trans person. You know, white people like to pull out their one black friend to be able to absolve them of whatever perspectives. Doesn't mean the entire trans community or other people in general are actually on that same page. The reality is Bayard Rustin, um, who was a gay man who organized the March on Washington. It was a gay man. That worked with Dr. King. Yes, was a yes. full out gay man yes. who organized this, this march. The only people who have been trying to separate us are those who are trying to use white supremacy tools, divide and conquer. So as a black trans person, I am also black. Look at me. The, walking into this interview, walking into the world, the first thing they see is my black skin. They might learn eventually that I'm trans, but they don't have to be mutually exclusive experiences. Why would we participate in these politics that separate us from our people? Let me go to my other question then. Hold on. Let me. Okay. Hold on. Let me, let me get some water. Let me. You were the first trans actress to land two series regular roles with Pose and American Horror Story. And now you're the first openly trans woman to lead a show on Broadway. Congratulations. Thank you. As a black trans actress, tell me, does it get exhausting being the first? Do you get tired of hearing about that you're the first? Um, do you feel pride feeling and hearing that you're the first? Is there something even unsettling about it? 
It does get old, the whole conversation around uh, being the first this, <laughs> the first that or whatever, because I've been I've been the first of many, you know, so I, I've broken through. I've been a pioneer. I've done a lot of things, but yeah, I hear that humble flex. Just a little humble flex. <laughs> Reality is, is that I'm just living my life. I'm just doing me. You got conservative outlets who are running stories like on Breitbart.com and all these things talking about my historic run on Broadway as a man stealing opportunities from a woman. 25 years that Chicago has been running. I am the first Mm. trans woman to do an eight week run. That is by no means taken over. That is me taking up space that I worked for and that I deserve because I am a woman, regardless of if you want to believe it or not, baby, believe what you want to believe. It's not going to stop the checks from cashing over here. And I know that it seems like it will because of politics. People's beliefs are wrapped up in whether or not we're able to access health care, whether or not we're able to be discriminated in housing, whether or not we're able to be discriminated with jobs. There are people who want to go back to a time where skip all this PC culture stuff. Let, let's just call a thing a thing. I'm not calling her her. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. So that's totally fine if you want to sit and stand what you want to do. But the rest of the world, we're moving forward. You can come along with the rest of the world if you want to enjoy a space where everyone is valued and respected. Or you can sit back there with your beliefs. But that's not going to stop the doors that I am knocking down because I want to live in a world where men, women of all backgrounds and intersections have autonomy over their bodies and over their lives. As a trans woman, I don't want to be told what I can and cannot do with my body. And as a cis woman, we should not be telling cis women what they can or cannot do with their bodies. The only people who are not regulated are men. Being in this time where it feels like I'm being the first, but in the middle where 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 regular rights, women's rights are being rolled back, voting rights are under attack, trans people's rights are under attack, police are brutalizing everything and everyone in sight. It's hard for me to talk about celebrating the first because we are so far away from the finish line to be talking about celebrate the moment, celebrate the joys, but. I re- I got so much more work to do. Well, I still got to celebrate all of these wonderful um, just responses about the things that your performance in Chicago has done, that you've been showing out as Roxy Hart in the second longest running musical on Broadway. What do you love most about performing on Broadway? I've never had a chance to do anything like that, but just anybody that has ever done Broadway, they say that it is, it's brutal. It's brutal. It's eight shows a week. Um, And I had to do a lot of uh, physical training to be prepared for this. So I'm in the best shape of my life. Just all the dance training and everything on top of it. Did you already have like a background of learning how to dance? Not a large background, but I did spend 11 years doing musical theater growing up from the church choirs, jazz choirs, chorale. Then I did like every year of musical theater. We would have to do fame and I had to learn tap dance or ballet or modern. When I transitioned, That's when I felt like as if my dreams were getting lost in transition. I started feeling like what I wanted would be impossible because the world Mm. is doing its best to try to make sure I don't exist, especially in public spaces. 
So I didn't mm-hmm. think that this full circle moment would come around and would happen. Thankfully, I never let go of the music. I have, you know, learned to play piano by ear in the fourth grade. Oh, dope. So coming back to the space where I'm more supported, where I can find producers and different people to work with who understand the gift that I have, all of a sudden I was so terrified of doing eight shows a week because I was like, how do I not lose my voice? How did you not lose your voice? I've been doing so much vocal training um, and it has been a game changer for me, especially as a trans person who didn't understand how to access my voice, different parts of my register. I have a very high uh, voice and just did not know how to fully access it. Looking like I'm putting any effort behind pushing that note out is all about placement and all about uh, singing in a tone that's going to keep my voice around for, you know, the eight shows. So it's been an affirmation to be in a space that affirms you are who you say you are. You've always been yourself, yourself to, be, to be. You know, I got to ask you. Ask if whatever you, you singing, want, Kurt. If you've been singing, you already know it's about to come. You know, you got to sing something. You want me to sing something on here on this podcast? Let me say it one more time. Would you sing something right now to let me hear this voice that is taken Broadway by storm? Do you mind sharing a little something, something with me? Let's see. <laughs> Maybe a little something. So, okay, let's see. Let's see. Um, I've had some good days. I've had some bad days. I've had some hills to climb, but all of my good days outweigh my bad days. I won't complain. Something like that. You know, I listen, I, you got me on the spot. I didn't know what to say. No, 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 no. Listen, 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 listen. First of all, dope tone. Thank you. Tone was fun. Great tone. Coming from you, Kurt. Thank you. Yeah, your tone was right. Now, come on. Thank you. I have to ask you as I let you go. How did you feel? How did I do today? Ah. How how did I handle this conversation? Someone who comes to the table with not a lot of experience. Someone that comes to the table with maybe views and beliefs and different walks. I want to know how did the love feel today? How did the humility feel today? How did the the invitation to the table feel from you today? And I want you to be real with me. And I want you to give me your 100% response so that I will know what to look for, how to be, what to present. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you because it you've been spot on, respectful, um, and, and for me, that's the number one. I will say that I'm very fortunate to have these experiences sometimes where I get to meet and have conversations with people like you, who I have admired, who I've been fans of for a really long time. And to have this interesting moment where I feel love from that person instead of what I expected. Not that I would expect this in this moment, but let's say if we have never we're going to cross paths. Understood. I have no idea how you feel about trans people. I just know collectively the space you come from as a collective. My greatest prayer sometimes 
is as a famous person, I have been able to experience so much love from people that everyday trans people will not get to experience. I played Candy Ferocity in one of the seasons she passed away. And it was something that affected so many people's hearts around the world that it made them cry. I have so many people messaging me about how they felt about that, about Candy. I always say, don't waste that energy on me. Give that love to a Candy girl somewhere in your local city, in your hood. There are girls who are barely making it by who people see as a joke because they don't have the resources to pull themselves together, to look any better than the way that they are presenting. My greatest mm. prayer is that they feel that love too. Mm. Is that they feel that acceptance too. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, very honored, very thankful for an incredible conversation with Angelica Ross. Thank you. You better sing. Stop. You better sing. <laughs>so thank y'all so much for listening to good words man i hope you are enjoying yourself i hope you're man enjoying the journey that you're taking with your boy and if you are please do me a favor leave a review on your favorite podcast app can you do that for me i'd appreciate it and don't you forget you can never go too far or you can't come back home good words with kirk franklin is a collaboration between for your soul entertainment sony music entertainment rca inspiration and something else produced by janicia francis with senior producer danielle jones wesley associate producers are danya abdel hamid rachel chodar and kyra Asabe bansu it's executive produced by ron hill reese brooks sarita wesley tom koenig hybrid agency and myself your boy Kirk Franklin. This episode was mixed by Calvin Bailiff, and special thanks to Charlie Yador and Steve Ackerman. <laughs>